BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Barbara Kingsolver says that she's drawn to characters who don't feel like they have a place at the table. Characters like Demon Copperhead, the protagonist and the title of our 2022 novel that won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction this year. It's the story of an orphan in Appalachia who's beset by crushing poverty and neglect, whose hardships are connected to the mining and pain pill industries, made worse by disdain and prejudice. We'll talk with King Solver about how she brought Demon Copperhead to life and the power of art to give voice and change minds. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's been almost a year since Barbara King Solver's Demon Copperhead came out, and the reception? Well, it won the 2023 Pulitzer Prize, along with Hernan Diaz's Trust. Demon Copperhead also won the Women's Prize for Fiction. And it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for 45 or so weeks. Kingsolver's project as a writer, she says, quote, is to represent Appalachia honestly, countering stereotypes with nuance, giving full account to our rich culture and the beauty of our place. This the novel does, and much more. Barbara Kingsolver joins us now. So glad to have you on Forum. Thanks for inviting me. Well, you have called Appalachia, Barbara, a region and a mindset. So, so tell us about both of those things. Well, it's a place, um, and it's a people who are very much defined by our place. Um, and it, it's uh, it's a little bit hard to find on a map <laughs> because it crosses a lot of state lines. And it's it's interesting that as uh, citizens of the U.S., we tend to identify ourselves by statehood. Um, but Appalachia is is not a state. It cross it's it's a it's a section of 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 the mountain range, the Appalachian mountain range and the people who live on it uh, and in it. And it kind of stretches uh, north 
east from the, the very top of Georgia across Tennessee, the eastern Tennessee, uh, parts of North Carolina, Virginia, um, Kentucky, West Virginia, up into Pennsylvania and parts of Ohio. And um, the Appalachian mountain range geographically goes much farther north, all the way into to Canada. But culturally, Appalachian people live in that piece of America that I just described to you. And it's interesting that we, you know, partly because of history, partly because of topography, we are um, a culture that's, as I said, very much defined by our place. We're mountain people. And we really have a lot more in common with each other culturally, historically, economically than we do with the the, the far ends of our own states. So, mm. for example, the, um, the capital of my state, Richmond, is six hours away. <laughs> I've been there maybe twice in my life. Um, people here, I mean, six hours away by car, that's uh, not by walking. <laughs> um, and, you know, people around here don't really think a lot about Richmond. And I think the people in Richmond don't think very much about us. Mm. Um, <laughs> Appalachia tends to be, you know, the part of, of, of America that, that doesn't, that isn't, isn't really seen very much. Um, so, you know, I could tell you a lot about the mindset part of that uh, question, but the main thing I would say about us is that we are a people made of community. We are very enmeshed in our families, our communities. When we sit down with um, a new, per you know, when we meet somebody and sit down with someone for the first time, the conversation that Appalachians always have in one way or another is who are your people? And you talk about like who, who you're related to, who are your kin, um, where do they live, going back a few generations. And you, you have this conversation until you establish how you're connected. Either, I mean, not uncommonly, you find that you have a relative in common or, you know, your grandmother's brother once uh you know was was uh was the landlord of of your <laughs> uncle or whatever you find that connection or they work together or something once you find that connection then you kind of relax into whatever other conversations that you're going to have so um and it and it's mostly a rural place um it's a place of small towns where everybody knows each other's business and um it it's it's a remarkable place to have come from. I grew up in Kentucky. I left um, as many small town kids do. Um, got out of there, determined to see the world. I saw the world, and I wanted to come back. And I I don't <laughs> live in the same town where I grew up, but I I I live in Appalachia, in the heart of Virginia and Appalachia, yeah. and I love it. This is home. I wouldn't live anywhere else. Yeah. When you did leave for a time, is that when you first realized that others in this country may not see the region the same way or see you the way that you've experienced the region? I was in absolute shock. I had no idea that the rest of the world saw us as, as a joke. Mm. Um, 
I went to I went to college in Indiana, so it was not you know I mean it was no, not some fancy Ivy League place. Uh, we didn't you know where I came from, we didn't know about Ivy League fancy Ivy League places. I was one of the very few people from my high school who went to college, but I went to college in Indiana. And to my surprise, well, most of the students there came from um, northern Indiana, Chicago, other cities, northern places. And they they thought that the way I spoke was hilarious, cute at best, stupid at worst. Um, I made the mistake of uh, enrolling in the debate team. And all I got from the judges was a list of words that I was mispronouncing. Nobody really even heard what I had to say because my accent um, uh, was considered considered substandard, even though it's hmm. not. It is. I mean, I didn't use bad grammar. It's just I talked the way I grew up talking. Mm-hmm. And when people hear that accent, I, I, I discovered to my dismay, um, they hear ig- ignorance. They hear bigotry. They hear, you know, just really vile stereotypes. That was new to me because, of course, that has nothing to do with who I was or who my people are. That's not mm-hmm. what I came from. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I that was the same year that the movie Deliverance um, mm. was playing in theaters. And, and just on from there, my whole life, I have witnessed you know um this 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 condescension of popular culture that um mostly doesn't show us at all Appalachians rarely well rural people let's face it rural life rarely shows up in in uh, you know television and moody movies um and and the news because those are all made in cities by by urban people see and if if um, if they are examining rural life, it's through an urban lens. So it's all even um, kind of more exaggerated. Mm. Um, uh, I have to say, Alach- because <laughs> like we, if we're seen at all, we are either seen as a, a, hillbill- a hillbilly joke or a poverty documentary. I was struck by even you were saying that J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, though a runaway national success, was despised by every Appalachian you knew who had read it. Why was yeah. it despised? Because it it just, cons- I think it was successful outside of this region because it confirmed the stereotypes. Mm. Um, I, you know... The man is perfectly entitled to write his memoir, but to pass that off as a memoir of a people, of a whole region, um, was 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 kind of a, a, a commission of violence against us, because the the upshot of his memoir was that you know he came from lazy no good people and that is that is our whole problem we're lazy no good people but but he was smart enough and ambitious enough that he you know he he went to Yale and mm. ran for senate and um what i didn't and i don't want to spend a lot of time i mean i would never tell anybody not to read a book um you should read whatever you please <laughs> <laughs> but um what bothered me about it was the absence of historical context. Mm. We are 
we have been in Apple Appalachia has been treated as a kind of internal colony. The the structural poverty here is the result of of more than a century of exploitation by outside industries that came in and took our timber, yes. came in and took our coal, um, and then it was tobacco, and then finally, and I expect we'll get to this, the opioid um, uh, exploitation. The coal companies in particular had a long history of very deliberately keeping out any other kind of employment in our region. So they 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 put the kibosh on any kind of other factories that might come in, other kinds of industries. Um, but they did this by basically buying up and owning towns, schools, <laughs> city halls, everything. They still kind of have a lock on a lot of our state governments, Kentucky and Virginia, especially um, coal. And so in so doing, you know, they did this and they also de quite deliberately suppressed our culture of education um, so that they had, you know, a population of sitting ducks who really had no other choice and no other skills but to work into the, in the mines. And those jobs are gone now, all but gone. Um, the mines, the coal mines employ now just a tiny fraction of what they, of, you know, of, uh, of the labor that they once uh, employed. And so, but here we are with a century of, you know, this kind of fence put around other opportunities for us. So this has left us where we are, not laziness, not a failure of ambition, but something that has been done to us. And what I think, if you really looked at the history of Appalachia, uh, is most people would be impressed that we've survived at all and I hope uh, impressed at our resilience because um, another thing I can tell you about Appalachians is that we are probably the most resourceful Americans you're going to find. We have had to do for ourselves and we do. We are people who make things. We grow food. We make quilts. We make music. Um, we uh, make moonshine. That still happens. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I love what you're describing because to me, one of the central ideas of Demon Copperhead and a concept that we see Demon realize as he confronts misery after misery, is that he realizes that bad things were done to him, that what has happened to him does not reflect a failure of his own or even of his community. And, and, the, and the parallel to what you're describing about Appalachia itself is, is really very powerful. We're coming up on a break right now, but I want to remind listeners that we're talking with Barbara Kingsolver, and we will have more with her and with you after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Barbara Kingsolver this hour about her novel Demon Copperhead and how she gave life nuance, a corrective in some ways, to damaging stereotypes about Appalachia and and why they persist. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Have you read Demon Copperhead? Did it affect you? It certainly affected me. <laughs> um Does what Barbara Kingsolver has been saying about how rural Americans are represented or often misrepresented, does it resonate with you? Are you Appalachian or connected to the region in some way? Or maybe you're from a place and you hear similarities? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. And some listeners wrote in ahead of the show in anticipation of Barbara Kingsolver being here. Sarah writes, I just finished Demon Copperhead two days ago. It's so good. How did she calibrate between the heavy plot points and finding some points of light. It's so damn dark, but every time it feels like it's just too much to keep reading, she gives us something. So Barbara, let's talk about Demon Copperhead. I love that assessment by Sarah. The character, especially for those who haven't read the book yet, introduce us to Demon. Who who is he? Demon, his his real name is Damon, um, which, of course, in, uh, before, as he says, before he's off his mother's tit becomes demon because uh, where I live, everybody gets nicknames. You get um, and they're they're rarely um, uh, complimentary men, especially boys and men get called stumpy or funny or uh um <laughs> peg leg or something and these nicknames stick so um demon um is this um scrappy kid he's born to a single mother in a single wide trailer home um that he's literally born at home um to a mother that really can't take care of him he she's she was raised in the foster care system herself she's the you know the the uh, product of generational trauma uh to put it in fancy words and he really just has to look out for himself from the beginning he he he's the one who tells you the story it's um it's narrated in his voice and I, I really love what the um what the person who wrote in uh said about the the cadence of light and darkness or maybe yeah. calibration that's a good word um because I knew I had to do this I I this I knew of course long before I even began writing this story when I decided I had to write this story about what the opioid epidemic has done to my mm-hmm. region and to yeah. these this generation of kids coming up. I knew it was going to be such a dark story. And I'm not going to take you through these dark chambers of scenes and, and you know, journeys and pathways of, of trial without giving you enough light and hope to keep going. I mean, 
you know, that's my job is to give you a reason to turn every page instead of throwing the book across the room. And I, I decided I could best do that by letting letting this kid demon uh, tell you tell you the story in his own terms as he understood it. And um, the choice of the first person narrative is, uh, you know, that's kind of a trick. Because I'm letting you know he is going to survive after all. You know, he's telling you the story from the other side. So it's a hero's journey. You follow him from literally literally from birth. It, it opens uh, with him telling you, first of all, I got myself born. Um, <laughs> and the worst of the job, he says, was up to me. My mother being, let's just say, out of it. Um, so... You see him uh, through from birth through oh, around the age of 20 to 20 to 22, somewhere along there. And mm. it's really it's his coming of age. But he really he has to be an adult from the time he's really four or five years old looking after his own mother. Yes. Um, and then, you know, it's not giving away too much to, to let you know he's orphaned and he goes through um, all kinds of um foster homes and provisional homes and, uh, and really, uh, you know, sort of looking out for himself, finding his own way. And it's an exploration of the, you know, the safety nets, the, the, the networks of care that we have in this country, not just in Appalachia, but everywhere that are really so full of holes. We, we really, as a, as a, as a nation, we um, have maybe not not really paid enough attention or really learned enough about the desperate need of of these kids and the resources that we're not allocating. Um, I was I had to do a lot of research, of course, and I was stunned to learn that the foster care system is run as a for profit business. So these kids are are products essentially and when a kid's in foster care his dss worker his caseworker is his legal guardian these dss caseworkers are paid so poorly and the work that they have to do is so hard um especially in regions like this that are where the system is stretched so thin yeah. um uh, because we have this whole generation of kids who's who have been orphaned by poverty and painkillers yeah. so these uh they're paid so poorly these caseworkers that there's a lot of turnover they um his demons caseworker in in uh, the one uh, adult who seems to be kind of dependable in his life um at, at leaves the dss uh to become a kindergarten teacher she's very excited that she's going to get more pay as a, as a kindergarten teacher and that's mm. that's a fact so there's so much turnover that it's it's genuinely common for kids in foster care not to know the name of their legal guardian and vice versa because they're you know their files get lost and there's so much turnover yeah. so this is something that i wanted to um just let people know about I because know. this is our future I love the insight you gave us into the inner workings a bit of the foster system through this book. The other thing, too, that you did research-wise, as I understand it, is that you you talked with people who had experienced opioid addiction, followed paths mm -hmm. of its descent, you know, 
um, into heroin or fentanyl or just the, the impact that it had on their lives. And I'm just wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about some of the core things that affected you as you yourself research this that you think are vital for people to understand? Um, first of all, that addiction is a place nobody wants to go. Nobody sets out to go there. Um, this is the, this is the the issue that I really wanted to to address with this book because um, I think people know a bit now about how Purdue Pharma really studied the metrics and they targeted th three places in the U.S. and one of them was Lee County, Virginia, this region where I live. Um, Based on the vulnerability of these populations, they chose these areas to just pump in their painkillers, which are profoundly addicting, even though the doctors who prescribed them were assured with fake research um, that they were that this was a good answer to you know pain and disability, that it was not addicting, but in fact it is. And so um, so this very quickly became a huge, issue in my in my area in the in the from the late 90s to the early aughts until um this this formulation was taken off the market after lawsuits um it affected so many people that i can tell you that of all the families that i know around here which is lots and lots i can't think of one single family i know that's been unaffected that has mm. not lost somebody to overdose and it happened, all the people who I, you know, with whom I, I uh, spent time, uh, um, who were generous enough to tell me their stories of their journey into addiction and, and uh, in most cases, um, out the other side through, re, uh, through recovery, in, in virtually every case, their story began with um, a, a bottle of of oxy prescribed by a doctor after a work injury, a sports injury or something, this bottle of pills um, handed to them by a doctor who said, set your clock, don't miss a pill, stay ahead of the pain. Cause this yes. is what, this is what yes. Purdue Pharma, you know, this was the best information they had been given. Um, never miss a pill, take them on the clock. And by the time they finished the first bottle, they were addicted. It changes. And it's not a matter of choice. It's not a failure of virtue. It's not a question of saying, oh, well, now I'll say no. This 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 drug changes your brain. So you, if you don't get that next pill, you feel so horrible, so sick. You feel like you're going to die. You uh, may hallucinate. You may have seizures. It's horrible and it puts you in a place where you will do really anything um to end your misery yeah. so people who people who get to that point aren't chasing a high anymore they're trying to stay alive but the it, desperation that it creates is just that's what has torn apart the fabric of our communities and left so many kids huge numbers of kids orphaned or you know yes. or well in the care of people who are not their parents because their parents are are dead of overdose or they're incarcerated or they're yeah. just not well. the, the, the desperation and the ripple effect it which is what i appreciated 
so much that you were able to show us through this. Um, several more comments coming in. Adrian writes, her book Animal Dreams remains a favorite of mine. So vivid and beautiful. I haven't read Demon Copperhead, but when I read that book, I when I read that book, I had dreams I was a participant in the book. Victoria writes, this was one of my favorite reads this year, Demon Copperhead, in quotes because I read it via Audible. The only way I can get through books is to multitask. I found it traumatizing and painful at times, but the narrator, Charlie Thurston, so inhabited the character that he made me stick with him all the way through. So my question to Kingsolver, did she hear the audiobook version? And in general, what does she think about her work being transformed in this way? Um, I I love um, the form of audiobooks, and I love that there are a whole lot of people, uh, my own kids included, my I'm millennial uh, daughters and sons-in-law, and I understand their lives. And it's, you know, when you have small kids, when you're driving a lot for work or whatever, audiobooks are a way you can still be a reader in these sections of your lives when you might otherwise have to give up reading. So, and I also usually um narrate my own novels which and I'm thrilled I love to do it I'm thrilled that my my publisher likes me to do it I generally go into the studio right after I've finished a book because they like to to release the audiobook at the same time as the print book so I go right into the studio and record and these voices that have inhabited my brain for years um and are still talking to me I get this chance to channel those voices get their accents as perfectly as I can get their intonation just the way I hear them and give that to my audible readers audiobook readers and I feel like I'm giving them kind of an extra you know like value added I'm giving them a version of the book that's even maybe a little extra from the print book in the case of Demon Copperhead because it's a first person narrator and he is a boy I can be many things, but I can't be a boy. Um, Hmm. (laughs) So I, but it was really important to me that it be the right narrator. So I auditioned and I chose Charlie. Um, He had done a really great job with uh, the books of another uh, Appalachian writer who's a great friend of mine, Silas House. And so I, I asked my publisher, will you please get Charlie? And they did. And I, of course, I haven't sat and listened to the entire book, but I, you know, I, I, I know his voice because I listened to it before I, I chose him. And I listened as it was, you know, and, and as they had dailies, you know, I listened and, and you know, I didn't want to, didn't want to cramp his style, but I wanted to make sure. And I was very pleased. So um, (laughs) I would call this a collaboration and I'm very, very proud of the way that Charlie did the book. Um, And I'm also going to say, well, you know, to those readers who say, well, I hung on every word, I'm just going to remind you, I did write those words. (laughs) Well, Juliet wants to know this listener writes, I would like to know how a middle-aged woman conjures the voice of a young man. It is something authors always do, but I'm curious about the process, whether she hears the language in her head, whether she knows someone who personified the voice. Well, here's the wonderful thing about being a writer. You don't peak at, in your late 20s. I'm so glad that I'm not, you know, an actor or a model or an athlete. Um, the older you get, well, a couple of, you accrue a couple of things. One of them is wisdom. And I do think, and you know, it's, wisdom is like scar tissue. You know, you can only 
get it by getting hurt and growing back, uh, growing back your skin uh, or your bones or whatever you broke. So um, I think that most of us go to literature, especially liter literary fiction. We go to these books for wisdom. Um, and and just by living longer as a writer, you know, you kind of get that if you're paying attention. But the other thing you get is the experience of having been many different ages. Um, I've been, you know, I'm in my 60s now. And I remember when I was a kid and I look looking at old people and thinking they had always been old. Um, just kind of not really believing that, but kind of thinking that. But in fact, you know, I've, I've, I've been, I've been a young mother. I've been a middle-aged uh, person. I've been a teenager. I've been a child. I can remember all those states. And as a matter of fact, I remember adolescence so well. Um, those memories are so so intense and so vivid, maybe because, I don't know, maybe it's hormones. I think a lot of it is just the intensity of our feelings as we're coming uh, into kind of a new way of living as young adults. But honestly, I remember being 14 better than I remember being 34. Um, and I'm going to say to anyone who's been there, don't you? I mean, first love, how you, you know, you can't forget that first kiss, first, all of those things, you know, first human, huge humiliation in school. There's those memories are so fresh. And I was, I mean, I, I did not live demon's life. I'm happy to tell you. Um, I was much luckier than him. Uh, I was raised by my own parents, but I was um, an outsider. I was bullied in school. I didn't have the right clothes. I experienced the slam book um, humiliation. Um, and I have my whole life, uh, for various reasons, had a, a kind of an, a sense of being an imposter. I never, all, I, I rarely... I mean, outside of my own family and home, uh, when I go to, you know, fancier places, I never really believe I I belong there. So there, there are many, many parts of Demon that I, you know, I know very well and can feel uh, in my own heart. Um, and okay, I've not been a boy, but I, I raised two daughters who are nine years apart. And what that means is that for the better part, of 20 years I had teenage boys in my kitchen mm. so I know what they are like I know boys well Susan writes thank you for this amazing book I read Dopesick last year and your due diligence framed this horror from a complimentary perspective in the next printing please include a map of Appalachia Merritt writes in addition to all the specifics you've been discussing Demon Copperhead is the most empathic exploration of a person's life I've ever read in a time when the public discourse is supercharged with name calling blame anger and righteousness this profound experience of humanity and empathy couldn't be more important we're talking with Barbara Kingsolver about her Pulitzer Prize winning novel Demon Copperhead and your reading reactions to it. Also, your questions for Barbara about writing, um, about rural America, about Appalachia. Those are all fair game. Email forum at kqed.org. Post on our social channels at KQED Forum. Call 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Barbara Kingsolver about her great Appalachian novel, Demon Copperhead. And so are you. Let me go to the phones. Eric in the Highlands. Hi, Eric. Join us. You're on. Hey, how are you doing? Great. What's on uh, your listen, mind? I have, I have, listen, I have a question. You know, I'm, I'm in my 60s, much like the author. And um, a lot of the things that I know about Appalachia have always been negative. For instance, you know, like as you mentioned before, the movie Deliverance and uh, the movie Winterbone, which I haven't seen in a while. And I was wondering if there was some um, things that you could point us to that were more positive, like, you know, like there's the movie Songcatcher, which is more about music and its its mm-hmm. uh, evolution in, in Appalachia. And so I'm looking for more positive things. And I haven't read a book in a while, so I'm going to check your book out. So thank <laughs> Thanks, you very much. Eric. So <laughs> positive uh, representations that you would recommend. And I, I don't know if also you want to talk about the way that people have and interpreted Appalachia, Appalachia, I think, in pronunciation it, as well. Appalachia is how we say it. Um, um, well, the the simple answer there is look for authenticity. Look to Appalachian writers. If you want to read about Appalachia, don't read what uh, outsiders have written about us or the movies they've made about us or, or the television shows um, or the bad jokes. Look look at what we write about ourselves there's it's such a rich we have a really um uh, a rich history of storytelling that's one of our one there there are a million things to love about Appalachia and one of them is our language and our stories and our literary culture um I mentioned Silas House who is um the um the poet laureate of Kentucky right now and his novels Clay's Quilt Cold Tattoo. Um, I Denise Jardina. I love her novel Storming Heaven. Um, oh, there's so 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 many. Um, and I actually just did a, a feature in the New York Times, um, a literary tour of of Appalachia. So if you really want the whole list, go there. And I had I I I listed about twenty authors, and I don't know how many books. And I had to pare that down because. Um, my first list had 50. Um, mm. Wendell Berry is not um, strictly Appalachian. His farm is a little bit outside the region, but he's, he writes so beautifully and so well of our agrarian culture. His poetry and his novels are wonderful. They're, I mean, I could go on and on, but but this, the short answer to the question is, if you want to see what's good about us, listen to us. Don't listen to what they are saying about us. And I think that's true. You know, representation has um, kind of, it, it, it's kind of arrived in our consciousness in the last 
decade or so, we've, we've come to really understand that we should be, you know, if we want to know about womanhood, we should be reading women, you know, if we want to know the experience of, you know, of, of indigenous people, we should write, we should read the stories they write of their own cultures, Mm. and so forth. And so, um, but, but Appalachians are, I think, still suffering from a, uh, a certain amount of, of indifference as far as our the importance of listening to our own version of our story. Yeah. Uh, but we're getting there, I hope. And I'm, I've done my best with Demon Copperhead uh, to put us on the map in, in a nuanced way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we have problems and we've been talking about these problems, you know, really problems that were perpetrated against us. But what we have going for us is, um, as I said, it's story, it's, it's resilience, it's, it's a sense of humor. We are really great at telling stories and the joke always is on ourselves. There's a kind of, um, modesty, um, that, that's really an important part of Appalachian culture. Uh, you have to be the butt of your own joke. You make, (laughs) you don't make fun of other people. You make fun of yourself, but, um, all of these things, this is kind of wry take that uh, this ironic take that Demon has on um, on on his life and the people around him. That's very Appalachian, just like, yeah, you knew this was coming and here it is. But it's that humor um, and his, you know, his funny take on things and his his language, his turn of phrase that I wanted to give you as a. You know, just this is this is sort of the light I wanted to hold up in front of you to lead your way into these um, these kind of scary passages, and well, also the promise, as I, as I mentioned with the first person narrative, the promise that he's going to come out on the other yeah. Track. I mean, you put demon through hell, but there are many bright spots, and there is also something I did want to ask you about, which is the fact that he draws superheroes, and that's been a respite for him all his life. It allows him some form of escapism to to challenge deeply damaging stereotypes. And there are questions from our listeners about if you see yourself in these various characters. So is is Demon's art a parallel to your own, Barbara? Well, something we haven't talked about at all, and we don't need to, but Demon Copperhead is a, it's a, it's a modern uh, transposition, is a modern retelling of David Copperfield, yes. Charles Dickens's great novel, and that was like the light bulb moment. I after I spent a couple of years trying to figure out how to tell this story, I hit on the idea of using David Copperfield as a template because if you're nobody tell you know can can turn a a, a crackerjack plot like Charles Dickens. And I thought I will just use his plot and his characters and make them Appalachian. And so the the kind of the the overarching uh, hero's journey in David Copperfield is that which is was the most autobiographical of Dickens's novels, is that this this orphan kid, this poor David Copperfield, who has all kinds of bad luck, has he becomes in the end, a famous writer, which was, who was Charles Dickens. Well, my David Copperfield was not, I mean, he was not going to have that opportunity. Plus, I didn't want to write about somebody becoming a famous writer. But I decided to give him 
his great talent is writing and he's unschooled, you know, in the beginning, he just, he just doodles in notebooks, but he loves to draw. I've, I've known kids like that. You have too. And he also loves superheroes because what little boy doesn't, he and his best friend Maggot um, play super, you know, they always, when they're playing, they play superheroes and they're Avengers or they're, you know, he's, he likes to be Wolverine. Maggot likes to be Storm. And that's, you know, I've seen little boys do that so much. And I thought about that as uh, that plus a drawing talent as, as a way to give my little demon, um, a, a, both a pathway in the you know sort of a narrative arc he in, ends up developing his cartoon talent he 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 invents a, co a comic strip and then some um he becomes a, a kind of an artist but in the beginning he's writing these he's making these comics in, you know in secret in his notebooks as a way to make an unfair world turn out right yeah. he and i think that's why you know kids and adults maybe gravitate towards superheroes because in a world where you know we want to see justice and we rarely do these are the guys and the girls the you know the the heroes and the sheroes who can make sure justice prevails and so yes. that's why he loves superheroes and he draws and he starts drawing his friends at, he he kind of looks into their souls and he sees their superpower and he makes uh his his friends in foster care the other foster boys he gives them all superhero identities and this is something that they you know at night after their miserable day of uh you know of, of abuse and and uh and child labor and stuff they they get together and he draws cartoons in which they um they have power and they have uh justice yeah well this listener emily wants to ask you about whether june Peggett, the character June Peggett, is also a parallel in some ways. Emily writes, June Peggett seems to reflect some of Barbara Kingsolver and her physician father history and worldview, i.e. the Appalachian who gets out and yet comes back to care for her community. And, and so can you talk about that a little bit? Just Well, sure, you, I can. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's funny. People always, from the beginning, I mean, I think this is my 17th book, and people always ask well now which character is you yeah um and none of them the answer is none of them I never write about myself well I mean like it, animal vegetable miracle is the one narrative nonfiction in, in which I sort of ostensibly wrote about our family but really I was it wasn't a memoir I was really writing about the food system but in fit and it isn't it funny that when you write a nonfiction book people just are determined to doubt your facts. But when you write a novel, people are determined to believe every bit of it is true. I don't know why that is, but um, I just make stuff up. I invent people. I invent plots. I invent, uh, uh, you know, character. It just, it's, it's all made up. Um, nobody here is me. Um, I've known plenty of people who leave, you know, they leave a place and then come back with a new attitude. You know, um, that's that's a very common story. N nobody here is me. Um, and all of them are me. That's the best answer I can give you in yes. equal measure. Because as a novelist, I have to inhabit every one of my characters 
to make him or her seem real. Um, I, and what that means, even the even the bad ones, even the really kind of evil, well, the hardest one to write here was uh, fast forward, mm. the, um, the the charismatic uh, sociopath, um, the, the the dangerous friend, uh, who's the high school football hero who leads um, demon into danger. Um, even he was, it's hard to write a sociopath because you have to convey their char- charisma and you also have to show the reader how dangerous they are and how, um, you know, how selfish they are and all those things. But as a character, even the, even the dangerous ones, even the kind of mean ones, I have to get inside of theirs, of that psyche and feel what's motivating that person and Mm. understand that nobody is all good or all bad. That's what I believe. And that even people that are widely judged to be bad, they think they're doing the right thing and their mother probably loves them. And I have to be (laughs) that mom. I have to be, because if, you know, if I wrote a character as a bad person, it would you wouldn't believe it. I mean, they would come across as sort of a cardboard cutout of bad. Yeah. So that business of really inhabiting the psyche of every character means that yeah, I'm inside of all of them. But as but in terms of putting my own life history into my uh, stories, I don't do that. It's it's uninteresting. I I would so much rather invent because I don't begin with character. I begin with theme I you know first decide what are the big issues I want to write about here then I make a plot I I, I kind of construct the architecture of a story that will carry that theme and then the like the last step is to um cast the characters you know plug in people I need to do all these things they need to be completely cooperative they have to do everything I say well I couldn't use my friends or family for those characters because they're not that cooperative. (laughs) I have to have have characters that have the backgrounds, the whole backstory that'll make them do what I, what I need them to do. Well, they rang true for a listener, Peter, who writes, thanks for bringing attention to my kin in Appalachia. Um, Let me remind listeners that this is a fundraising period for many public radio stations and you are listening to forum. I mean, a Kim. Um, let me read the rest of Peter's comment, Barbara, just as you're talking about character and inhabiting and bringing them to life. Peter writes, longtime fan of Barbara, and I was moved to tears, though this is not infrequent for me with her luminous writing. I encountered her first through her tales from the Southwest while working as a physician on the Dinah Reservation in northern Arizona. I hope I'm saying that right. She highlights something I came to understand intimately. The question we should all be asking is not always, why is it so difficult in these communities? But how is it not worse, despite the long histories of exploitation? We have so much to learn about family and mutual aid and kinship from our families and kin in places like Appalachia. Martha writes, for 28 years, I've traveled to Asheville, North Carolina, from Sacramento to visit family. Everything Barbara shared rings true to my experience, the roots in a place, the economic and resource extraction, the inner resourcefulness of the communities. And while my brother and I were caring for our parents in their elder years, the connections and support, and the very special mountain hardwood forests and more. Even though I am a West Coast girl, it is wonderful to have this spotlight today. 
Um, I'm sorry I had to interrupt you there. <laughs> this, is the, this fundraising period we're in right now, which we so appreciate everybody being involved in. Um, I did want to ask you about one other thing here, which is you were mentioning earlier David Copperfield and using Charles Dickens' work as a as sort of a template for this. And there is a moment where you write these lines from David Copperfield, never be mean mm-hmm. in anything, never be false never be cruel. I can always be hopeful to you. And it's in text that a character in your novel, Mr. Dick, one of the good people in Demon's life, writes out and attaches to a kite, which he and Demon fly. And I was just wondering why you featured those words so prominently. Um, well, that came straight from Dickens. And the Mr. Dick was, you know, came straight out of D- David Copperfield. And he he flew kites for reasons that are entirely clear in David Copperfield. But in my case, this was Mr. Dick, this this um, profoundly disabled um, man who's who's been raised by his sister, who's been sort of, his sister's taking care of him his whole life. He loves reading. And he, when he finishes a book, um, he writes out his favorite parts, favorite, you know, lines or paragraphs from the book, and then he flies the kite. And he's because the authors, he says, are usually dead, and he wants to thank them. So that's his way of kind of sending those words up to heaven. And so that was my choosing those words, which were very important in David Copperfield, and um, putting them on Mr. Dick's kite and sending that. That was my way of thanking Charles Dickens, sending up my thank you. Oh, well, let me see if I can squeeze in Peter from Florida, who I understand, Peter, it's your birthday today, and you have something quick you want to say to Barbara? Yeah, it's the uh, 40th anniversary of my 20th birthday. Uh Okay, (laughs) happy birthday. (laughs) Listen, I I really appreciate your guests. I, I love that you're saying... So much of what we got growing up in this world has to contrast uh, Appalachia or country to the city, Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres. And what you're showing is it's like, yeah, no, no, it's a proud culture. It's not proud in comparison to the city. You know, like we're, we're pretty proud for considering that we're hicks. You're not saying that. You're saying, no, we got our own thing going. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We are ourselves. And I just want to just try to say succinctly that we are in a moment of such dangerous divides in this country, especially between urban and rural culture. And I want to say that as a as a rural person, while I don't necessarily vote the same way as my neighbors, I really understand my neighbors. And we we are really tired of feeling invisible. As, as you say, we see ourselves on TV because we're watching TV too, you know, we've got cable. Um, <laughs> we see ourselves portrayed as jokes or pathetic individuals or not at all, mostly not at all. And so I wanted to say, let's think more kindly about our our neighbors. Let's have a conversation of respect. Well, Barbara Kingsolver, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Susie Britton, thank you for producing today's segment. Listeners, thank you for your questions and comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, 
the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.